G'day, and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire Podcast. My name's Mark, and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start, but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away, or even plan to hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel, The Hunter's Campfire, where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos, along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and good hunting. Good evening, gents. Good evening. How are we all? Yeah, okay, thanks, mate. Now, I think before we get too far into it, we should introduce our guest tonight, all the way from Sweden. I won't. Is it Malmö? How do yeah, you pronounce exactly. it? Yeah, exactly. Headquarters Malmö. I'm just looking on the map. It's near a very big bridge that goes to Copenhagen. Exactly. I actually <laughs> live in Copenhagen and work in Malmö. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> so with us tonight is uh, Carl Gustav Schulen Halvalt. Perfect. If I got that right. Oh. And oh. how Carl managed to get here is we all met Carl at um, Hillcrest, the that that place of international connection <laughs> down there at the Hillcrest Indoor Pistol Range one night, where Carl was uh, along with was it Eric? Were you with? Yes, exactly. We're uh, leading a Aimpoint night through Beretta, Australia, and we were invited down, and so we had a great time shooting pistols for the first time, for, for me anyway. Oh, well, not the first time, but one of the first times. And also shooting Aimpoint gear or Aimpoint gear on rifle. So it was a great, great night, and we said at the time that we wanted to catch up with Carl again, but we didn't realise when you're the regional sales manager for Aimpoint, that region is basically... The planet Earth, isn't it, Carl? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's yeah, it's a lot. Of, I think at the moment I have uh, twenty eight uh, areas. One of them being Africa. So there's a lot of countries there. That's uh, it as well. So uh, and I just got New Caledonia, which hey, is yeah, uh, nice. New Caledonia, a big spot. market, but uh, we also have to uh, pay attention to the smaller markets. So. Mm. Uh, no, yeah. So I have so, let's say central, eastern Europe, and then a few ones further away, like Australia, New Zealand, New Caledonia, and Africa. Um, those are my markets. Very. So basically, overview. everywhere but North America. Is that about right? Uh, North America, Canada, Asia, uh, and a few European countries. There you go. That's a regional sales <laughs> manager. I'd hate to, I'd hate to meet the guy in head office if that's a regional place on there. Um, so, uh, and at the time, I didn't get a chance to. Uh, uh, John A caught up, I believe, caught up with you down in Melbourne a few weeks later at the Beretta yes. Day. So, Deal we day, really yeah. wanted to ha get you on the channel and and talk to you because at the time, I think you said that you hunt for two hundred days a year. When we were, is that correct? Did I get that right? I mean, uh, it depends on who you ask. Um, <laughs> and who's but... listening? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I, I tried to. Uh, I try to hunt as much as I can because, I mean, that's the reason I have this job. Uh, because I've, uh, since I stopped studying and started working, I've always tried to uh, work with what I love the most, which is hunting, which I've actually succeeded with. I've only, I had a short break where I was working for Porsche, the car company in their marketing in Hong Kong. That was half a year. And then I was back in the, in business. So, um, 
but yes, I, I mean, maybe not 200 days, but uh, somewhere between 100 and 200, uh, I would say. Uh, now I travel a lot for work. Um, but then again, a lot of my <clears throat> customers, they are all uh, wholesalers in the uh, hunting industry, let's say. So a lot of, of uh, actually our work is also just being with them. And, and I think you connect much better if you are in a relaxed uh, environment instead of just sitting in a formal conference room. Um, so they actually tend to want to uh, do something and that's very often hunting. So um, I get to go and, and uh, hunt uh, a lot around uh, in the world, which is amazing. Mm. Mm. Very jealous. So everyone's <laughs> just paused for a second. That's right. Uh, We're just kind of processing the days. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> That's it. We're just processing the days there and and the opportunities. So look, look before we get into it, I think we I think we're going to talk a lot about hunting. But before we do that, we should probably you know give it some context. So as we said, you're the regional sales director for uh, Aimpoint, which basically means that what what forty five percent of the planet Earth is your is your patch. So you obviously travel a lot. So tell us about where the head office in in Sweden. Exactly. So basically, uh, just a quick sum up about Aimpoint. Aimpoint is a Swedish company owned by a Swedish family, founded by uh, the father of the nowadays owner. He was called Gunnar Sandberg. He founded the company in 1975. And there came a clever engineer who was a sports shooter and had invented uh, the Red Dot site uh, by being in the bathroom, shaving in front of a shaving mirror, which is concave, and while shaving, he saw that the light bulb in the back was not moving when he was moving his head. And he thought, this is, I mean, this I can use for my sports shooting. So he created the first, let's say, site, which was a toilet paper tube with a light and a mirror. <laughs> and then he worked around. And this was the, this is where it all came from. There's not a lot of companies uh, which started like that. And he took that uh, to um, Gona Senpa, who was a very, already a very successful businessman who had uh, some big companies and he was a very keen hunter and he said i think this could be a thing but it was in 75 they started it and it was the first red dot in the world and i think it was a bit too early people were not really ready for that so from more or less 75 up to 95 it was red numbers but gona he was he believed in it so he kept um putting money into it and then after more or less 25 years uh, some american soldiers they bought the hunting ones because everything back then was only made for hunters and sports shooters bought the hunting one and then uh, put them on their duty rifles and there's a very famous picture we love to use which is general um, schwarzkopf from the gulf war and his uh, protection squad they all have aim points on their on their weapons mm. and uh, this then led to that the military got to no aim point and from 95 then it took off you know i think when the first order came from the U.S. military, we were doing 8,000 aim points a year, and they ordered 80,000. Wow. So everything had to be ramped up a lot. Um, but production is in Malmö, which is in the most southern part of, uh, of Sweden. We also have the head office here. We have accounting and sales and marketing and everything is here. Then we have an office in U.S., which is a subsidiary company called Aimpoint Inc. They do all sales and marketing in U.S., and then we have a production facility, which is far, far, far up in Sweden, where we we only produce sites. So we produce them down here, right next to the office. We have a big production facility. We are, uh, and then we have one up there, and we are on the other side of the 
road right here. We're building a, a huge new three-story building, which is going to be finished next year, where there's also going to be a, a new uh, production facility. So when I started in the company four years ago, we were 150 employees. Now we are just touching 400. Wow. Good growth. Yeah. So what's the um, what's the take-up like in Australia? Because it's not – I mean, I've got one now. Ian, you've been running an aimpoint for about, about a year now. Yeah, I've had one. For um, a, Scott yeah, Beretta actually kind of twisted my arm and said, "You got to, you know, we're going to put one on a rifle for you and give it to you, which I, I've got, which is a lovely rifle, but it runs the aimpoint." Oh, so, and I mean, and I mean, there's been red dots here. They, they are obviously knew about them beforehand, but um, what, what's the uptake? Do you think, or what is it? Is it growing? Is people interested in them? Um, or is it a very niche market? And obviously, market. I don't mean in, I don't mean in the military sense. I mean in the sport shooting sense. Uh, I think you know it depends a bit on how you if you divide the commercial market, which we do. So like, there's the, now we have three legs. It used to be two. So it's hunting, sport shooting, and then uh, since lately we call it personal protection or home defense or whatever you want to call it, which was kind of a segment we nobody talked about until two years ago, at least over here. And now mm -hmm. it's it's an accepted uh, thing to talk about, and uh, there's a lot of people who actually uh, buy products for this purpose. But I think in Australia, I mean, I was there for the first time when I met you guys, and I was there for four weeks, and we did the whole training tour, which you also were part of, and we had the Beretta Dealer Days. Um, and I think the plan is that we are hopefully going to be back in January doing another two weeks of training. Uh, I think it's... It's the way of, of, let's say, the main hunters back here in Europe, they use it for driven hunts, which is not a thing in Australia. So the hunting purpose in that way is is not as big as over here. But I think on the sport shooting side, you know, with the pistol side, the acro that you also tested, all of you, mm -hmm. that is a thing that we see wherever there are pistols and there are sport shooters. This is, is really growing uh, super fast um, because we are still quite early in this um, matter because sport shooters have been shooting pistols for many many years and they're used to iron sights so first you have to get people the let's say the first movers to adapt to it and then you have to get the important people to um like it and then all the rest are gonna are gonna follow but i think you know if, if we walk on the corridors here you hear a lot of people talking about that in let's say five years you won't see a pistol coming without an optic ready uh, mount so, okay. and I think that you will also see a tendency of a lot of the pistol manufacturers, they're going to deliver pistols already with sights on them. Then, of course, you can take them on and put the one you want. But I think it's not going to be more than five, more than what, five six years. Then most pistols are going to come with a, with a red dot because it's, uh, it just makes it so much easier to shoot a pistol for people who haven't shot before. If people are very good shots, it's difficult because the way you kind of mount the pistol is is slightly different to find the red dot every time. Uh, where when they were used to shooting with iron sights, they aligned the iron sights and that's a bit different. So for those who shoot a lot, there are some who say, now I don't need it. I know my pistol, I know how it shoots. But for all the new ones and the learning curve, learning shooting a pistol with iron sights versus learning to shoot a pistol with an, with an aim point, a red dot sight, it's just, it's so much faster, you know. So I think on, on that segment, I think it's going to grow a lot. And then also for like, let's say, 
the guys who want something that they put on a gun and they don't treat the gun very well because they use it for work or for pest control, you know. Um, I mean, we had, uh, after I came back from visiting you guys, there was somebody who uh, had an aim point that dropped, he dropped the gun out of the helicopter. Um, and the side is not going to break, but he couldn't find it. So uh, oh. he, he wouldn't be able to see if it was broken or not. But they had, because we build everything nowadays for the military and then we kind of carry the products over on the commercial market, the Hunter Sport Shooter gets a military grade product for a lot less money. Of course, we don't say they're cheap, but we uh, think we are the best yeah. uh, at doing red dots in the world. Um, you know, certainly, the the durability you, the durability sure. of those is, is incredible. I mean, when we were at the dealer day, Carl had me shoot at a target. We had, I think I had three shots and it was perfectly zeroed. And then he took the scope off and he threw it up and down the range, dropped it on the concrete, kicked it, threw it around, then mounted it and shot in exactly the same spot. It was, yeah, it was amazing. The durability of those scopes is incredible. Yeah. And I think, you know, for us, it's very important that we do these tours. We travel as much as we do. We go and meet guys like you. We go and meet all the, the distributors and their sales reps. And then, of course, also all the personnel in the, in the shops because they are the ones who are helping us to, to tell this story and to make people realize what it is they're actually having in front of them. Because if they just take an aim point, and they take whatever competitor and they say, oh, but this one is like $1,000 and this one is only 300 Why shouldn't I just buy it? If you look through them, the two red dots. Uh, and then, you know, there comes in the skills of the sales guy who was then actually able to tell the story of, I was at the Beretta dealer days and these crazy Swedish people, they came and they threw it around. And of course, it costs <laughs> three times as much, but you, you buy it once and your grandchildren are still going to be using it uh, when they start shooting, you know? So... Um, that's why we are very dependent on actually being out and making sure that people learn this and are excited to tell the story for us when we're not there ourselves. You know, it's interesting because I know that, you know, you say like, you know, it's got that that driven game kind of heritage and that's not something that happens in Australia. But there is a lot of, for me, there's a lot of similarities between driven game hunting and a lot of the hunting we do in Australia, I mean, Ian used the aim point on a on a BRX up in the territory for buffalo. Yeah, and you know, and that's Very good. that that's a driven game <laughs> setup. You know, it's it's a it's an Italian rifle, a straight pull meant for you know, it's not a semi-auto, but it's meant to you know fast mm. fast shot aim point. And um, he used it on buffalo. And I mean, when I shot, I shot. Buffalo, I was about 20, 30 metres away from them, you know. Uh, I don't know about mm. you, John. You shot, you shot, how far were the ones that you shot? I was about 75 metres from mine when I first took that first shot. Yeah. And the pigs were, those pigs that, you know, Hogzilla, we didn't see you get shoot Hogzilla in, but we heard you shoot him. Yeah. And, uh, and then there was the ones at the waterhole. You know, we basically <laughs> stood on top of those ones. So there, there's actually a lot of op there's a lot of situations where it, it is kind of like it's it's far more like that than say what you might see if you're watching um you know uh, the the American Western Plains hunting where you know it's it's long they're, they're at, at distance they're glassing often 
especially in state forest hunting in New South Wales, it's often actually relatively close. You are more often than not, you're in a hundred meters and you know, you're, you're looking through pretty dense foliage and there it is. In fact, last time I was down in state forest, the pigs I saw, they were 40, 50 meters when I saw them and they didn't see me. There is a lot of similarity, you know? Yeah, I'd agree with that too. I hunt with an indicator, a dog and, um, which gives me the advantage of being able to hunt outside of the traditional hunting hours of early in the morning and late in the late in the afternoon, where most people in state forest would hunt when the deer become active later in the day or early in the morning. Um, with a dog, you get to flush them off their beds, and you're pretty much at that stage always seeing them as they hop up and decide to get the hell out of there. Mm. And most of those animals are within 50 metres. Like they're, they're close, they hold their nerve until you get close enough, and then they bolt. Um, yeah. Aim points, brilliant for that. Really good. Mm. And yeah, I, I really like that that idea that where you can bolt one. Where we've been quite impressed with that idea where there's one kind of hanging off on a forty five degree angle off the barrel of a scope too. That looks yeah, quite yeah. interesting. That's what's happening next? Yeah, <laughs> the piggyback setup. Yeah, yeah we also so, have yeah. a lot of people who. Uh, like that over here i think it's you know because hunters and gun people in general are gear freaks so the more they can buy and put on uh, <laughs> the better it is uh, yeah. but i think yeah as you said you know we also uh, when we were uh, having the training in adelaide we had a range where we could shoot very far so we put up um, a big uh, metal gong at 300 meters and then we just told the people just shoot it with the aim point. And they're like, what? No, no, we need the big bar scope. Otherwise, we can't shoot it. And I was like, no, just sit there. And when you when you can't see uh, the gong because of the red dot, you're on it. And then just squeeze the trigger. And then people started hitting and they were like, whoa, yeah, that's actually true. Yeah. You know? So I think it's a lot about the industry uh, teaching people that you need a lot of scopes and big magnification. And I mean, big enough. Big magnified scopes are also very good at, at if you're hunting in the mountains and you need mm. um, to be able to identify, let's say you are hunting in Germany or somewhere where you have to know that you have to shoot a four-year-old A1 stack, you know, then you need magnification to be able to identify what you're shooting at. But if you are hunting where it's for the meat and you don't really care what's on the head um, or if at such close distance that you can just see it with your bare eyes, then you don't need more, you know. I mean, if you look at the hunters 100 years ago, they were using iron sights and they were also shooting at 300 meters, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so and I think there's also a tendency, there's a, over here there's a lot, uh, it's very popular with bow hunting. So we are also trying to teach people that uh, because uh, bow hunting acquires a lot, a lot of training on top. So if you're already hunting with your shotgun and with your rifle, if you then want to add the bow, then you would have to spend many, 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 many hours practicing with that. Where instead, if you just said, okay, I'll take the mentality of a bow hunter, but I'll, I'm going to go hunt like with a bow with my rifle. So you put yourself, you set a limit. I can't shoot anything further away than 20 meters. Then you put your aim point on top and then you go bow hunting with your rifle, you know? So you have the same, you have to be as good as, as stalking, uh, but you just shoot it with a rifle. So you're sure when you place the shot, it's going to die fast and humane, uh, but you still have the same challenge that you have to be as good a, as a hunter as when you are hunting with a bow. Um, so we also have some people who, who use it in that way. Um, 
Yeah, I, 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 I love hunting pigs with shotguns. <laughs> and that's just, yeah. yeah you've yeah. got to get on top of them. It's, it, I just, it's actually one of, probably about my favorite hunt is hunting pigs in creek beds with shotguns. You know, because it's, it's very fast. It's very close at times, like sometimes mm. a little bit hairy close because they're basically <laughs> almost stepping on them. But it's like that. Mm. So, yeah, I, I've just as I said I've got, I've got the aim point now on a BRX, like Ian set up. And I've carried it a couple of times right. up in the blocks already. Um, and often there is a situation where you've got to shoot at distance there and you can see the, the limitations of it there. But in other times when you're walking through the heavy stuff, it's actually, you know, it, it's, it's actually you can feel this is what it's designed for. It's in, it's in that more close quarter heavy scrub where a lot of hunting in Australia is just like that. So yeah, I'm, I'm really impressed with it. I'm getting, and I'm getting yep. more and more used to it. It's just, just a, you know, it's a whole different way of hunt of, of target acquisition and aiming. And once you get around that, and I really like that thing that Eric did with um, the training with the, you know, the Google, the Google eye training he did where he's got the two eyes and you, and you lift up and all that stuff. So I, I'm at the range practicing it with it a fair bit. Mm. So, I have to say the same. Um, I once I got my confidence with it, um, I was off. I was off and running. It was fine. Um, unfortunately, I had a new rifle, straight pull rifle, and I had the aim mm. point on top. And we decided to go and target buffalo for its first outing, That's right. <laughs> which was also my first buffalo experience. Mm. Um, so you know, it was a bit, it was a bit unnerving walking around yeah, with an undercarriage rifle and an aim point. Um, but you know, when we sighted that one in, we went to a, we went to the bush range, and just what you're saying, Carl. Um, we was we were sighting that in, we you know, firstly for 100 meters, and then 200. Mm. We were surprised how accurate, so accurate it was at 200 meters. We yeah. just dialed mm. down the dot uh, um, illumination settings so that we could see the the the, the site of the, the the target. Target, yeah. and we were inside an MOA at 200 meters. We were yeah. we were really impressed with it. Um. So then, you know, that's fine. Target to target. Um, I was just lucky. I think that it was pigs that popped their heads up first. So I was able to get a few rounds away and, and get used to it before the buffalo. Um, yeah. But magic. Well, that's that, a good combination. That was. Oh, I, I've. I've. You know, I often think about that trip that first afternoon when we saw that herd and we were, we were crawling over those ant nests, ant, you know, ant columns. And I saw that big herd buffalo, and I went, oh, "I'm not sure if I can make this shot." <laughs> well, I think what would you do now, though, Mark? I think now, uh, knowing what we know about the buffalo experience, I think uh, I would have been a lot quicker uh, to get the first shot off. I would, I would have shot more quickly, but because uh, you know that I think that's what it was. I was, I was waiting for the perfect shot, and when he, mm. and when they did that, you know that quintessential buffalo stuck its nose up in the air and so the you know the brooms went flat and he could you know looked at us down its nose yeah 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 and there was the boiler room and i was thinking i'm going to stick this barns in there and then it moved and that tree trunk of a leg got in the way and i went oh i don't know if i can break that shoulder (laughs) and you know it was a massive animal it was five five o'clock in the night you know, it was what five o'clock in the afternoon. We're on that bloody that plane that never, you know, next to us. It we just crossed that plane that didn't look like it had an ending to it. Smashed by the sun, yeah. and it smashed by the sun. I, was like, I don't know if I want to chase this thing across that plane. You know, that so I, can't, I can't see the end of that country. So, yeah, it was hmm. a, it was a, 
know, if yeah, we were we could have lit it up quicker and said, just everyone get into it. <laughs> yeah, well, we were twenty, probably twenty kilometers walk in in a forty degree day, uh, facing mm. into the well, the sun was facing into us as we were walking across this mm. never ending plain. The thing about the the country up there was, you know, if you think about, you know, this vast savanna that's in front of you, you can also see a million ant mounds that stand six foot tall. So, you know, and they're, you know, as wide as me at the base, which is reasonably wide. And um, you're um, you're trying to pick out a herd of buffalo through all of this, mm -hmm. right? You can see them through this, you know, layers and layers and layers of spiky ant mounds. And it's just, you'd think, oh, there's 30 buffalo on a, on, you know, on an open plain, but you can't bloody see them. You know they're yeah, there. And... You can see horn, an ear, a foot, yeah. a tail. <laughs> Oh, and, so in, and and again, I didn't, you know, I knew how big they were until I saw them, and then I realised how big they were because you know, remember the, we saw that cow. I saw a cow, and oh, there's a cow there. And then I saw this thing that kind of like dwarfed the cow. And went, well, that's buffalo. Oh. They were just. Yeah, I think we walked you know, into the like, biggest buffalo in the area. That's yeah, right. It made, this, it made, made the cow look like a dog. You know, <laughs> holy oh. moly, that thing! There was thirty of them, and they were. They were huge animals, and they're just looking at us, and they all—they know we're here. Yeah. Oh, well. So, anyway, I mean, have so let's talk about some of your hunting, cut. That's what we really want to know about. We want to know, you know as you said, between. No, I'm not okay. done. I'm not done with okay. tech. Um, I, sorry, Mark. There you go. Um, I wanted to explain a bit more. Uh, a couple of things. One, the difference between Aimpoint and the various other uh, red dots that are out there. Because you guys have got some pretty unique technology. It's not a secret. Well, you're not going to tell us the secrets, even if, even if they are. <laughs> but there's, there's something quite unique about Aimpoint that makes it as good as it is and as strong and hardy as it is. So, so I'm just keen for the listeners to understand why I'm paying three times more. And my second question... Um, just talk me talk to us a little bit more about that mounting option we were talking about. When you're mounting on a scope, what's involved with that? How easy is it to take off, put on, take off, put on anytime mm -hmm. I want? Like, is it is it as easy as that, or is it more tricky? Curious. Um, if we start with the first question, so basically, uh, as I also mentioned before, we nowadays and since the last, I don't know, since early. Yeah, late 90s, early 2000s, we developed any, everything we do is developed by our, we have around now 85 engineers who are sitting and constructing all our products and they're all made for the military market. And mostly they come from requests from special forces who say, we need this for this. And that's how the process starts. And then we try to create uh, the products that are uh, <clears throat> wanted on these markets. Because we kind of see that if you have a good uh, foot in with all the special forces around the world, they are kind of the trendsetters in their world, meaning that if the special forces are using it, it's going to be X amount of years before the big armies also want to have the same as them. Um, so basically, all the aluminium and everything we use is military grade, and it's tested for the military. What we then do is that we take, let's say, if we compare uh, the Acro C two which is the smallest the pistol one which you can also use for uh, actually have it here now developing new material but it's basically this little acro 
Um, that comes in a P and in a C. And the P is the military version and the C is the commercial version. And there are only technical specifications that are different. For example, with a C, you only have two night vision settings. With a P, you have four night vision settings. But for anybody, let's say really anybody, it doesn't really make any, any difference. Then, of course, the military ones, we test harder. They're built by the same people, the same components. We just test the military ones harder. But so this, uh, the accuracy too, you can dive down to five meters if you would like to. The P2 down to 25. I'm quite sure if we took a C and we dive down to 25 meters, nothing would, would, would happen with it, you know. Um, so, uh, and that's what you get, you know. And the, the military ones are more expensive because we test them harder and they're bought in bigger quantities. Uh, where the commercial ones are a bit cheaper because we don't have to spend as much time on on testing them. Um, so basically, what the what the hunter and sport shooter gets is a military grade sight for less money. Um, and I mean, one good feature is, for example, that all the aimpoint sights, the commercial ones, you have fifty thousand hours on the battery, which means five years. So when you turn it on, it's going to go on setting six or seven. And if you don't do anything, it will stay there on for five years. And then after five years, you know that the the intensity is slowly going to go down and you see, okay, now it's time to change. It's not like one day it's just out. So basically you can put it, you can turn it on, put it in your gun cabinet, take it out whenever you want to go hunting. And after five years, you will see, okay, now I have to go to setting 11 where I was normally on setting nine and then it's time to swap the battery. And I would say in 95% of all our products, it's the little flat, um, the little flat battery like this one, the little the 2032, which you can get anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so you can get it anywhere and they just last really, really long. I mean, I had my first aim point was a Comp C3 and I had the battery in there for 11 years before I swapped it because I turned it on when I start hunting season around 1st of October. And when it's finished 31st of January, I turn it off. And then it's just in there, you know, um, and it lasted 11 years before I had to switch the battery. So that's also a very good thing that, you know, it's always on. Um, and you don't have to think of that. It's suddenly just when you're out, because I know a lot of guys who hunt with scopes that also have, um, that also have an illuminated red uh, reticle. And mm -hmm. suddenly when they are out hunting on this stand, it's just gone, you know? And you only do that once if you're on a driven hunt, let's say in Hungary or Germany or wherever, and you know it's an amazing hunt, and you only have this red dot and you come out and suddenly the battery just goes. There's, there's no crosshair, nothing you can use. So you're basically just standing there missing uh, the opportunity of a lifetime because the product was not uh, trustable. So, um, Carl, is so that's there, why we are more expensive. Is there something unique about the aim point? Um, that means that wherever that red dot is, it doesn't matter where you're looking, it remains in exactly the same place. The whole toilet paper light bulb moment. Exactly. Is that unique so, to aim point? I thought that was really unique to you guys. I mean, we talk about being parallax free. That's what you are mentioning. And I mean, there's a lot of people, a lot of, of producers that state that they are, but if you took them out on the range and you would kind of uh, compare them, you will actually see that there, there, there's really a big difference between paying for a premium product, which is going to last generations and paying for a much cheaper product, which first of all is, is not uh, living up to what they are telling they will. And secondly, I mean, the lifespan is so short. So if you took 
and let's say the cheaper competitors and you uh, compare the parallax, you will really see that they are not uh, as mentioned. Where if you take the, the endpoint, let's say the echo or the, the H2, the micro, and you put it on a window and you try to move it around, you're going to see that the dot is just staying exactly in the middle. And that is because it's an, a little LED, which is thrown up on two lenses in front. And between the two lenses, depending on the side, there's X amount up to like 30 different coatings. They are made so they let all light through except red light. And the red light is then what you see a reflection of. And that is why no matter how you move it, the red dot is going to be there. So even if it looks like the red dot is in the bottom and you have to suddenly be super fast because you turn around a corner and there came the buffalo, if, if the red dot is in the bottom, as long as you put the red dot exactly in the face of the buffalo, it's still going to be game over for that buffalo, you know? Yeah. And that's a very important thing when you're hunting on fast moving targets because you don't have a lot of time and you just have to, I mean, just look at the target, just bring up the dot to where you're looking. And when the dot is where you look, you just pull through and pull the trigger, which is a very big benefit for hunters and also for the sport shooters that have to be fast, let's say IPSC shooters, but also let's say all our military customers, for them, it's a bit more important than for us hunters because... Uh, they actually depend on that it it shoots where they put it and that it always works. Yep. So without mm -hmm. laboring the point too much, I think what I was trying to make sure that I explain, we've got a lot of um, new hunters and, and people that are interested in equipment, the difference between what you're talking about and a traditional scope, other than the zoom, obviously. For the traditional scope, you've got to get the perfect sight picture. If you don't have that perfect sight picture, you're going to be slightly out with, with the aim point. Exactly. Doesn't matter how you you're looking have scope, if that dot's on box. the animal, it's on the animal. That's yeah, that's pretty cool. Exactly, love it. Cool. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, and to the second question, the piggyback. So that's also a thing that came from the military side uh, because that's been a thing there for many years. But now we have a lot of sports shooters who uh, shoot, uh, for example, PRS, where they're shooting from everything from ten meters up to eight hundred meters. Mm, they yeah. put it on top mm. and they use the red dot as a reference to change targets so they can leave the big scope, let's say, on 25 times magnification or 30 or whatever. And oh. instead of having to dial up and down, they just lift the head with the red dot go to the next target and they go in and they can shoot immediately. So that's oh. one way of applying it. Uh, oh, another way God. is just for the hunters, you know. They either put it on top or they put it 45 or 90 degrees on the side. And then if you understand where you can shoot far, but you also have the opportunity that something is going to come super close and super fast, you can use, let's say, the, the big scope for everything above 50 or 100 meters. And then you've sighted in the, the aim point at 50. So you know, okay, everything from zero to 50 at full speed. I'm just going to either look up or tilt the gun. And then I use the aim point out to 50. And from 50 onwards, I can use the scope if I have better time. And they're still standing. Which position do you uh, think is best for the hunting setup? On top or 45? Uh, I'm actually going to see. I don't, I have it. Um, I just have Put one selfish in questions here. Room. I'm looking forward to seeing mine up, <laughs> and I just want to know uh, how to do it. So I've I've shot uh, I've shot both. So the first year I tested it, it was sitting 45. But the thing is, first of all, zeroing the two, so the scope and the aim point when it's 45, is a bit tricky for people who are not working in the industry because suddenly the you know the the, the rotary is not working x y, so you have to like go like this, you know, so you have to go a bit up and then a bit in and a bit up. So the searing part is a bit more uh, tricky. Uh, and yeah. then, you yeah. know, when you start 
tilting a firearm that you shoot, the impact is going to differ depending on the degrees of your tilt, you know? Mm. So what I saw is I mounted it on my rifle and on some driven hunts, I had it 45. So when I was shooting the scope, I was shooting straight. And when I had to use the aim point on running targets, I was tilting it like this, you know, so I was looking perfectly through the aim point. But my tilt, because I only put it and I did a bit of practice, but not a lot. So if your tilt is not 100% repeatable, the angle is going to be different, Thanks. which means that at 50 or 75 meters, there's going to be different in impact, which means if you tilt it a bit too much, a bit too little, the shot is going to move further back into the animal. So I unfortunately had some shots where I thought I was perfectly on it, pulled through, pulled the trigger, and they were sitting quite far behind, you know. Which is a thing that I'm, why I'm not the biggest fan of having it 45 degrees. I have now shot it since then for two years sitting on top. Because I think, you know, then people say, yeah, but it's super important to have cheap contact with your gun and that you have a well-mounted gun. But nowadays, at least here uh, in Europe, in let's say almost all the countries, silencers are allowed and most people use them also on driven hunts. So you have a short barrel with an over barrel silencer which means that it's not going to be super long and hanging around very nose heavy. So you get it in there, you have a silencer on, and with the silencer, even if you're shooting, let's say, 30 or 6 or, or 300 Win Mag, there's no recoil anymore. You know, So it's not like you're going to lose the side picture when you shoot it. So even with a big caliber for driven hunts, you, you will be perfectly able to just lift your head, not have cheek contact, have a good contact in your shoulder, lift your head, and then just for the running shots out to 40, 50 meters, whatever, you can make perfect shots this way. And this way, it doesn't change any impact at all. No, the rifle is going to shoot exactly the same. And so I like it on top. Um, but it's very different. I mean, if you ask in the office, uh, there's going to be five out of 10 are 45 and five are on top. It's more confused, so... but <laughs> go on top, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not the gun sitter uppery guy, right? Um, uh, um, guys, I'm just saying in the end speak. What 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 did the silencer and short barrel have to do with that? Recoil. I don't have that. I don't have that. I don't recoil. have a silencer or recoil, a short barrel. Right. No. So basically, if you would if you would have uh, if you let's say you shoot a three hundred Win Mag with no muscle break or no silencer, you have quite a heavy recoil, you know. And that yep. means if you're not perfectly in the gun, mm. it's going to be very uncomfortable shooting like this with your head up. You're going to have and it's everything is going to be going around. But because you now have a silencer, there's no recoil, so even with not having perfect cheek contact to take uh, the kick, it's not a problem. We don't have those, uh, unfortunately. So I'm talking no, about a BRX and 3006 with a Predator yeah. 8 on top and then an aim point on top of that. You're telling but me I'm, I'm going gonna, gonna to shoot that would, monster pig, but I'm going to get a sore shoulder. No, no I would probably put a, a sore muscle neck. break. We're not allowed muscle breaks. Muscle break. Oh, also not muscle breaks. Yes, you are. We can have muscle break. Oh, muscle break. Yeah, okay, sorry. Moderators, yeah, yeah. moderators yeah. Not muscle break. Yeah. No, 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 no. Muscle break. I would for sure uh, because uh, before the development of of silencers over here became really good, I was shooting muscle break because you okay. I always wear uh, double ear protection, so I have some in ears and on ears, um, mm. and especially with with muscle break, it's really important. I know there's a lot of people who say, yeah, but it's only one shot and so on and so forth. But if you're unlucky, just one shot with a muscle break, let's say 30 or 6. I have a friend, he shot two shots at a robot, forgot his ear protection, didn't really think of it, and went out. Four months, his ear was hurting. He went to the ear doctor, and he lost 15% on the one ear, you know, 
with two shots. So it's really important. But the muzzle brake takes away the recoil, so you have a much better sight picture of what's exactly happening when you shoot the gun. Uh, so I would put a muzzle brake on yours and then mount it on top because then you have the same effect. Just remember your protection. I'm not mm. sitting next to you at the range. So much to think about, eh, when you're setting this stuff up. <laughs> I mean, I'm there, and, then, and then I'm trying to consider the dog, you know, because the muzzle brake brings yeah, the noise yeah. back to the dog. That's right. Well, it tends so to much, punch it but... that way. Yeah, it depends. There's a lot of different ones. Some punch it out like this. Some punch it back into you. Some punch mm. it straight out. Uh, you can mm. also get some that are only up and down. There's uh, thousands of different versions, but that's another yeah, thing. I mean, if you have your hunting companion with you always, your dog, then uh, then again, uh, uh, silence is just you know an amazing invention. Yeah, but unfortunately, not a thing in Australia. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not uh, sure if I right. want to hang it's on to a nine point three like that. I don't want to be shooting a nine point three oh. like that. <laughs> Hard Crick on the neck. Uh, <laughs> dog won't be coming to the territory, so um That's true. it'll be a good territory setup. And I mean in terms of what we talked about, you asked about the mounting and so on and so forth. It's uh, you get the ring, you can get it for either now just to show the normal picture then the ring. Uh oh, wait a second, I'm just gonna see if I have it here. Yeah. Just gonna get you to drop it in a post pack. <laughs> uh, Ship no. two. I have. Uh, <laughs> I don't have it here. I have. Yes, yes, yes. No, somebody stole it. Yeah, oh. you know, people steal everything. Um, but I. Um, so basically, you get them in thirty and thirty-four millimeter rings. Yep. Uh, which depends on on your scope. I know you also have smaller scopes, but that's the that's let's say the standards here in Europe, and that's why we make them those. Uh, and you get it either with the Picatinny rail on top, or also with the Acro interface, um, which is uh, this one. So basically, not as big, but the interface is this one, so it fits to the Acro. So that's just more or less the same size plate as this one, just with yep. the Acro. So you can either choose to put the Acro, which is Without uh, the mount and the flip-ups, it's only 60 grams. So it's super light, so it's not going to add yeah. a lot of weight to your setup. Um, and you can you just mount it, and if you mount it with a screw, it's fixed. You don't touch it. And if you want to have the possibility to take it on and off, so you only have the ring sitting all the time, you could uh, mount a Picatinny ring and then... Uh, a quick detachable mount like this so you basically just yep. have the lever you open and close it and then you can take the side on and off for the hunts that you want to carry a piggyback and for the other ones you only have the ring sitting on the scope so Very you good. have 60 uh-huh. grams less and you find the accuracy is is fine taking it on and off i know it's designed to do it master question that's what jonah also said what we showed at the at the beretta days yeah. so basically uh with a quick detachable as long as you remember to put it in the same rail on the Picatinny, yeah. and you always remember to push it forward and down when you mount it, then it's going to keep zero. But even with, with one of those, which only has a screw, like this one, you know, it's just a normal yeah. Torx 10. Yeah. We don't recommend it, but as Jonas said, saw, as long as you close it with the same um, tension, then it should hold uh, the and it was the zero. It was dead on. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't yeah. even torque wrench it, called yeah. it by hand. Um, there's no yeah. torque wrench. So what we say is, if you don't have a torx tool with you, you have the same point, the oh, tool I you get with all our products. This is really precision. 
bend it till it twists. <laughs> yeah, right. and then you see when it starts flexing, it's it's it. two right. newton, <laughs> and when it starts really flexing, you're at three. Yeah, that's uh, right. Plastic so you don't flexes. need that actually. Yeah, it's of course best to have, but if you don't have it, you can use Eric's little trick with <laughs> the twist. Yeah, and as I said, I don't know how how much it is. As I said, Carl did that on the range, and it was dead on. It was amazing. I'll have to After... uh, I'll have to talk to my dealer because that little um, precision tool didn't come with my endpoint. Oh, I got one of them in here. Yeah, and otherwise, I'm sure you can call uh, Scott. You will have a few spare. You'll sort me out. Yeah, I think I actually sure. got a spare one myself. <laughs> that's oh, yours is that, 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 that's what ends us. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, I think I got, right. I've got a, I got a spare one. I've, uh, you know, my my gun gear. I've got all sorts. Of, <laughs> I've got all sorts of things in there. I think I've picked up one along the way somewhere. I've got a spare one. Oh, uh, they were my technical questions that were completely self-centered. Any, anyone else got any before we hook into actual? Actually, I, I, I do, and it's more of a, I suppose, a tip that I learned from Carl at at the at the dealer day was the best thing you can do is the aim point zeroing target. I don't know if you remember, Ian, when we went to the bush range, how we struggled to zero. Aimpoint actually have a zeroing target that makes your life so much easier. We used it, and what a difference it makes. It really does. And, mm. Carl, those are available on the website, aren't they, if you download? Exactly. You just go on aimpoint.com, and you in the search, you can just write zeroing targets, and there's a target for every site. And the difference is that the, the small squares, they are made so they fit the clicks because the clicks are different on every. So the Aqua has one which is like maybe thirty millimeters, then there's one which is twenty millimeters. So not uh, knowing exactly, and then you don't have to know. It just tells you at twenty-five, at fifty, and at hundred meters what each square is in terms of clicks, and then you just put it up, uh, and it just makes life so much easier. And it's again about you know they were made uh, because. In the whole process of building trust, we want people to have the best first impression. And if you come out and you have a normal target and there's no info and you bought the product, but no hunter reads the instruction manual, at least a lot I know don't. So you don't really know how many clicks it is. And then you start shooting four or five shots and then you want to adjust and you don't know how. So you try and then you get too far and then you have to go back with the aim point searing target. You basically just the big fat ring, which you see on the target is for ball sighting. So. You start ball signing it to save some ammunition. Then you put three shots. Then the two lines that are on the target, you can basically use them to count into the middle. You count the squares, and then the information tells you if you have to say one square is two clicks, or one square is one click, or two squares is one click. And then you basically just count the squares, do your math, and then you put the dot where you need it, take another three shots, and within six shots, you should be able to have it perfectly zeroed. You know? And this is all part of having a, a very good first um, impression of the product. So people trust it and they get good friends with their input. Yeah, I mean, when I, I didn't use the import target because I don't even follow those kind of instructions. But uh, <laughs> but it, I think it was four shots and I, at 50, I went, okay, that's perfect. So then I went and I did that. Uh, I think Eric told me, you know, sight it in like it's a rifle, close one eye until you, and then go from there and that was it. 50 it was right where it wanted to be went down to the 100 slight adjustment and then i was shooting off hand uh, shooting it off hand at 100 and then it was fantastic i just i i said ian at the time i wish i wish rifle scopes were as easy to set up as that because i do a yeah. lot of reviewing of rifle scopes and i and you know, 
the best I can get down to about 11 rounds to get it, you know, until you can start getting some performance out of it. But with that, I was just mm. stunned how it was that easy. I think, as I said, it's four and I was, and I was away. So. And that's the only time you should shoot an aim point with one eye is when you're serious, because then you're mm. actually aiming. Yeah. But otherwise, it's always, as you guys learned, both eyes open, 100% focus on the target, and just bring the dot to where you're looking. That's the best way of using it, because if you start shooting an aim point with one eye closed, you lost already, because it's such a small tube, and you sit there. Mm. No, that's not how it's meant to be used. Mm. Okay. So, we're going to talk about hunting now, or any more questions? Get on to the hunting. Okay. Tell us about your hunting. Tell us about <laughs> some of your hunting, Carl. This is what I'm uh, I mean. So tell last... us about hunting. In, in So what kind of hunting uh, is available in Sweden? Let's start with Sweden. I'm looking at the map. So Sweden... I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm planning to visit. I'm planning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You should come. And this is actually from, from now and the next four months is the best time to visit in terms of hunting because this is our main season. So uh in terms of of sweden it's really a hunting mega because you have a very healthy population of wild boars there are roe deers there's fellow deers there's red deers there's mouflon and of course we have moose as well and in terms of birds in sweden you're still allowed to release uh ducks and pheasants uh, for like let's say in traditional english style pheasant and duck shoots and then at the same time if you go a bit more north there are all the the birds that live in the forest, so capercaillie and black grouse, which you can then also hunt with pointing dogs. And then more north, you come up in the like uh, the Swedish highland similarities. Uh, and there you have this uh, rupe, it's called, so it's kind of a, a grouse. Uh, and uh, these are also amazing to hunt. So there's so many different. And of course, you also have um, the, what are they called? reindeers you also have them, uh, up north so i mean the the possibilities of of hunting are endless down here so down here in the southern part the biggest hunts are the driven hunts so driven hunts for wild boars and red deer and fellow deer uh, and moose we don't have as much moose down here you have to go like an hour more north to to be able to shoot the moose and um, well, these only, start on first of october and go in it's like, exactly. right, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna go home no. and it's a minimum three yeah. hours. I mean, that's just not <laughs> the right. That's right. Exactly. That's, that's right. big. It's a bit different mm -hmm. with the with the distances. I mean, you can drive really far. I mean, there's some. I'm gonna go to a moose hunt in two weeks, which is up in Orre. It's called. So if I had to drive from Malmö up there, it's 14 hours drive. That's a bit, bit more relatable for you guys. That's like going for yeah. the groceries for you. But that's uh, for, exactly. Um, so that's what we do now. So now, uh, the duck hunt started mid, uh, August and then the moose hunt just started, uh, last week up in the Northern part of Sweden and down here, more Southern is going to start mid October. And then we have the driven hunts where it's basically normally three drives around 12 to 20 people. And they then get divided out to high stands. And then there's a team of beaters, which is, let's say. 10 to 20 guys with dogs and they then walk through the different drives and the game that is in there wants to go away and passes the, the stands that are um, standing there. And then you have different quotas. So in terms of management, it's the landowner who decides what to shoot. 
There are only certain species like red deer and uh, moose that is determined by quotas from the government. So the government tells you, depending on the size of your, your land, you can shoot X amount of uh, calves, females and males, and the males have to be uh, these sizes. And uh, But with pigs, wild boars, and with uh, fellow deer and rodeo, it's up to the, to the landowner to determine how much they want shot. Mm-hmm. So I was just going to ask, when you're talking about up north, is that closer to Finland or Norway? I'm just looking at the map, mate. Norway. Oh, okay. So yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that way. So it's okay. just up, 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 and then when yep. when Sweden, Norway kind of goes that way, it's closer to uh, to Norway than to the water. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Here we there we go. So it's in, this, a, in the. Do you have a yeah. um, a favorite game that you like to chase? At home, we'll get into the overseas stuff, but later on, is there a you know you are a deer man or do you prefer the hogs or? No, I mean it depends. I think you know, it's all into the seasons. So, in Denmark, uh, where I'm from, we start the roebuck hunt the 16th of May. So around there, the spring, it's all about the roebucks, and then first of September. The stacks start, so you can shoot fellow stacks and red stacks. Uh, and then the, the bird hunting also starts 1st of September. So when we get there, we forgot everything about Robux. Then it's only the stacks and it's the birds. And then from, let's say, mid-October, it's the big bird shoots, the pheasant, uh, pheasant the driven shooting for that. And then uh, from November on, kind of, you have all the driven hunts for... In Denmark, we don't have any wild boars, but then it's driven hunts for fellow deer, red deer, and rodeo. Mm. And over here in Sweden, cool. it's then the wild boars and all the others. But I mean, it's uh, I I just love hunting, so it doesn't really matter for me uh, <laughs> what it is. Uh, yeah, as long as I'm hunting, us, I'm happy. <laughs> so <laughs> but, different because uh, we don't we don't have the seasons anymore. We used to have that's some it. sort of season with with deer and state forest, but it's gone now. It's pretty much mm. yeah. You go and that was only, yeah, yeah. Mm. That's it. So, is there you, a, you um, said you lived in you live in Denmark? Is that right? Did you say? Yeah, yeah exactly. I yeah. live in Copenhagen, and <clears throat> yeah, my, my father is German. My mom was half German, half Danish, but I'm born and raised in Denmark. So, uh, I'm Danish. I only work in Sweden. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time over here when I'm in the office, and also hunting in Sweden is quite extensive as well. Uh, but yeah, I'm Danish. Uh, in the terms that I've, I've born and raised on paper, I'm more German than Danish, but uh, in reality, I'm I'm Danish. Uh, a German Dane living in Copenhagen, working in Sweden, just to confuse everyone. What's the commute? I was like? thinking, it, it, well, as I said, if, if that bridge is stuck, you, you don't get to work if that bridge isn't working. No, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. So, days, if there's very strong storms, they close the bridge, and then I'm working from home. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to ask. Oh, so you, you, what is the? I was going to say, from a um, from a hunting perspective, is there a education piece that you have to go through training or or tests or anything like that to be able to hunt in Sweden or or Denmark? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, in all European countries, let's say except UK, you have to do your hunting license. It's very different in the different countries. So, in Sweden. <clears throat> It's not that difficult. You can do it like in two intensive weekends and then you have a 
shooting test where you have to shoot with shotgun and with rifle, and then you pass your exam, and that's once in a lifetime. In Denmark, it's as well, you can do like two or three weekend intensive course where you have to do a lot of studying before, and then you have uh, the different lectures on, on weapon handling and shooting and so on. And then in Denmark, you take a theoretical part, you take practical part, which is like you have to be able to distance different animals and say, if you can shoot this at this distance, so there are different signs out in the forest and you go on this trail and then he asks you, would you shoot at this goose or pheasant or whatever? And you have to say yes or no. And <clears throat> on the written exam, you can have four mistakes out of 40 questions. And that's about everything from, um, from gun laws to weapons, to recognizing animals, um, to seasons, all kind of that. And then after that, you have to do a shooting test where you have to hit uh, six out of 18 clays. So some flying away and then two different towers from the side, and you have to hit two at each of the positions. And then if you want to hunt with a rifle, after that you have to do a rifle exam where you shoot on a on a robot target at 100 meters, but you can use, like, if you have a, a bipod or if you have a hunting bag you want to shoot off, it's, it's perfectly fine. Um, and if you then compare, let's say, the Scandinavian ones <clears throat> in Germany, it's kind of a, a secondary uh, gymnasium exam. So you have five exams. And you can either do it so you take every evening for a year, you do the courses, or you do an intensive three weeks. But then it's like you go to a, a school where you live at the school, and for three weeks, you learn and you train. Wow. And then after that, you have five exams. And I mean, I tell you, there are no hunters that are better educated than the Germans because they have to know all the animals, when they get small ones, all the diseases they can have, all the trees in the forest, all gun laws, everything about all the guns they could potentially shoot. It's crazy. And, you know, they also have to recognize the ages of the different animals. So in Germany, you can come on a driven hunt where they say, you're only allowed to shoot uh, four to five-year-old fellow stacks of class A1. And then there's A1 down to D5. And I'm just like, well, I'm not going to shoot any fellow stacks because I have no <laughs> clue if that's an A1 or a D4 or whatever. But they know that, you know. Um, so it's it's very uh, different, and I think uh, it is uh, that's really good. It's also the threshold for people to join the hunting world is much bigger because first of all, it's quite expensive for them to do these courses, and second of all, you need a lot of time, and you actually have to learn a lot, you know. So, uh, um, but they're very well educated. But in Denmark, it's um, it's it's really popular. We luckily have a TV show which is called like kill and cook kind of if you translate it to english and it's a chef a crazy danish chef and then a, a nature guy who's a hunter and they have now for 11 years there's like six to ten episodes every year and they basically travel around the whole world try to shoot different they were also in australia shooting water buffalo um, and if they get it they cook it outside and they live in tents and so on and so forth and if they don't they have to eat some let's say punish punishment animal so they take some horrible animal nobody wants to eat and have to cook that if they don't shoot it and it's so popular it's really helped um hunting gain popularity in denmark so we have a, really an increase of new hunters in denmark which is amazing we could take that on yeah, yeah. i'm just, I'm just For thinking sure. that huh? <laughs> lose, lose the like slam Eat a dirty fox. Eat a co <laughs> that, you know, the old joke about eating cockatoos, you know. You put it you, mm. you get the cockatoo, you put it in a pot with a rock and you boil it for three hours and you throw away the cockatoo and eat the rock. 
So yeah, it's so, so good to have someone that. new to tell you jokes. I love it. That's it, mate. <laughs> so yeah, so I like that idea. I think that's uh, that, that's something in that one. I'll um, send you a link, and you can have it. Uh, it's on YouTube with subtitles, so you can see kind of the concept. It's a lot of yeah, fun. Yeah, it's fantastic idea. Awesome. Yeah. So with so your work, is there much? Sorry, is there much hunting in Denmark then? Yeah. There's also a lot, a lot of hunting. I mean, oh, okay. we are actually the country in the world with the highest hunting pressure per square centimeter of land because wow. it's a very small country. And even though mm. we are only 5.8 million, we are still 200,000 hunters. And if you compare it to, let's say, Germany, there are 80 million people and they are 400,000 hunters. Oh, wow. So uh, it's, uh, it's very big. So we have big pheasant and duck shoots and then there's a lot of uh, small game like rabbits is also very popular and then of course all the the rodeos and rodeos and fellow we also have some apparatus where there's seeker as well so mm. if you're a visitor to to sweden how do you what, what's your requirement for hunting or do you know that i mean so yeah, what, what so if someone went there you would have to get a swedish hunting license but that's basically if you have a hunting license from your own country, you go online, it's very modern, and you just put in your birth date and your name, and then you pay, uh, that would be around 80 Australian dollars, I think. And then you have a Swedish hunting license for one year, and that's only valid if you have your own hunting, a valid hunting license with you. That means that if you got stopped by the police, they would ask you, and then you would show your Swedish, and they would say, oh, can we please see your native one? And then you would show your Australian equivalent license, and then it would be fine. Um, that's also the license we will be making for guests. So when the guys from Red Australia or some other clients um, were hunting with us, we make them Swedish guest hunting license. And then they're allowed to uh, to shoot. And we make an insurance which covers 10 million euros. Uh, so they're also insured when they are hunting here, if anything, unfortunately, should happen. Um, and then uh, they're good to go. This insurance can even cover, you know, if I... They would shoot a pheasant that landed on a car and broke the windshield. The insurance would pay for a new windshield. Okay. Public yeah. liability insurance, yep. And okay. then, of course, uh, in terms of traveling with guns in Europe, we have something called the European uh, Weapons Firearms Passport, which is a passport where you put in all the guns you want to travel with. And then there's a picture of you looking like a passport. And then you have all the pages with the different um, serial numbers of the guns. And this you just show when you fly and they check that the numbers in the passport and on the gun are the right ones, and then you you are off. So it literally takes, let's say, maybe half an hour, an hour longer than flying with normal luggage. Um, so it's, it's really not complicated. Mm -hmm. That's good to know. Yeah. So anything from you guys about hunting in Sweden? Not particularly Sweden, no. But I was um, but, let's just interested out. in all of the... All of the um, the rigor and the the effort that goes into getting licenses and you know the training that you were talking about, um, some of the other countries having, there must be a really interesting view of the Australian hunter compared to the European hunter. You know what 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 is that? I mean, you're you're well travelled, all right, um, and you're not going to offend anyone, <coughs> so be as open as you like. But um, you've travelled here, uh, you've travelled to lots of other parts of the world. Um, what is the perception of, of Australia as a hunting travel location and, you know, 
the people that are here that are, are part of that pastime. I think there's as many views of Australian hunters as there are people, but uh, I think, you know, one perception is, let's say, from my point of view, when I hadn't been there and I had only uh, got information about hunting in Australia through when I was working, I had a hunting agency, so we were sending people to Australia to hunt. And mm. that was kind of, let's say, the the, the hunting of uh, your deers, the water buffaloes, and, and that. Uh, and that was kind of a similar let's say, perception of the hunting as in Africa, kind of, you know, you go and stalk the buffaloes and so on and so forth. Um, and then I think when you get there and you go in a hunting shop and you see the amount of ammunition people buy these metal boxes with a thousand shots in them uh, and you talk to you guys and travel around and you, you kind of get an idea of that for a lot of people, a, a big part of, of hunting is more pest control. You know? mm. um, and then, of course, you met, I mean, um, I met the guy, what is he called? Tweed something, the Australian guy who was also at the Beretta Deal Lace. Something he sponsored by Beretta. Oh, and Tweed Hunter. Yeah, Tweed Hunter. Tweed Hunter. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, yeah. you know, mm. when you when you talk to him and it's it's a lot about stalking deer and, and so on and so forth, there I think, you know, a lot of people can see themselves in what he's doing. But when I was there, I was just quite amazed about how, uh, like, all the manufacturers, ammunition and so on, they really look into manufacturing products only for Australia to accommodate your kind of shooting, you know? So when I was there, uh, I got a different uh, point of view. I mean, I was uh, going hunting with um, Nathan Armstrong from Beretta and one of his friends. And I had just taken the lightest, most summery hunting clothes I had because I couldn't pack a lot. I was gone for six weeks. But I just basically had, I don't know, a green shirt and some Hercula trousers and some boots. And when I came out, both Nathans was like, look at this guy. What is he wearing? You know, because it's it's not a thing. And I mean, if you walk into an Australian hunting shop compared to walking into a Danish one, I mean, the clothing is, let's say, 60 percent back here in Europe, you know, because it's it's all about the things around it. And, and you would never just go hunting in a pair of jeans and a T-shirt where when I was over there, I kind of got the feel that when you go hunting or shooting, whatever you do, you just go in and grab the gun and you're wearing whatever you were just wearing, doing the things you were doing before. You know, so there's that kind, which I don't think a lot of people outside realize that it's also a lot about that pest controlling and actually just shooting. Uh, and then, of course, there's the side with tweed hunting and where you, you go hunting. And that's very similar to, to what we do back here. Or what we, you would expect of when you go to Africa, you know, you have your gear, you put it on, and then you go stalking. Uh, so I think um, there's so many different views of what Australia is in terms of hunting. Of course, from the people who've actually been there, and just from the people who only heard the tales and saw videos and and whatever, you know. So uh, yeah, thank you. I think it's always interesting to hear what yeah. people think of other parts of the world. We we, we always look further afield. It's funny, when I, I started hunting in Australia, um, I love it, but I was always looking for that next overseas trip. <laughs> and it's only, it's only in recent years that I've really come to understand how great the hunting is here. So many different species to chase, you know, from, from one end of the country to another. Take the deer and the, and the buffalo that we keep talking about away, obviously the staples, pigs. Um, 
but then there's you know there's donkeys and there's camels and there's all sorts of things out there that that people chase so um it is a great place to be able to hunt um but people do have this draw to africa and alaska and places like that as well so interesting perspective Mm. from the other side of the world yeah and i think you know as you said you mentioned in the beginning when we were talking about that that you miss seasons i think there's a lot of european hunters who envy you guys and let's say the guys in new zealand that you can basically just go whenever wherever and not shoot whatever but you know there's loss a lot less uh rules but here everything is managed you know we can only hunt this from this and robux in denmark 16th of may to 15th of july then it's over then you can hunt them again from 1st of october to 31st of january so there's so many rules and there are some longer periods let's say in the spring summer where there's not a lot of hunting where people uh let's say the crazy people like us we are um really uh waiting for the season to kick uh, it it seems from an external person's perspective that you are so focused around those seasons that you have the season and you're driven towards it and then you switch you on the next one, you switch you on the next one without having those exactly. seasons because we can just pick the rifle up and go, I guess. We don't seem to have that same driven focus. Now, some do because they're very focused on Samba only or something mm. like that. It's really interesting to watch. Yeah, mm. I, I totally agree. I actually wrote a little bit about that a couple of months ago. Um, I actually, in a way, it's funny how you say like they're envious of, of uh, you know, European hunters are envious of Australia because we get, I actually sometimes a little envious of what I see, you know, I've hunted in England and I've met people like yourself and especially in the States because I think in many ways you have a better appreciation of the animal. Mm. Um, and I think, so you know, government. well, certainly your government does, but I, I think individual hunters have a greater, well, I don't have a greater connection, but I think they have a, in many instances, have a more, they're more appreciative of the, of the, of the game species that, that we have in Australia. Whereas I think if, if it's, if, if it's just there, it's just there type thing. I think mm. that's something that I've always, I've, I've felt, you know, like, there's more, you can have more of a conversation about shop placement and things like that because there's a, and I suppose it's because simply, you know, as you said, you've got a very small window to be successful. So you probably, you know, you go, okay, that this is it. I've got, you know, my robe, my ro- my rodeo season is this long. So I've got to mm. get right, you know, I've got to be right into it or it I, I miss the opportunity for another year. And, you know, I, I, I often notice that when I talk to friends in the States and things like that, you know, they really prepare for that very short window because that's all it is. If you don't get it right, mm-hmm. then it's next year. And, you know, and, and I, I know guys who are quite successful as hunters, as in, but they'll tell you they might go three, four years without getting a, a decent-sized elk or something like that because it's just you know, it's a small opportunity. And if, if things don't go right, then they don't go right. And, you, and then you're back to the drawing board. So I actually quite, I, I, I have some envy for that kind of approach as mm. well. Mm. That's true. I think, as you say, you appreciate more. I mean, I can only look at, for example, when we hunt moose in Sweden and in Norway, because up there, they're so far between. I mm. mean, we had a lady who was hunting in our hunting club up in Norway where we hunt moose. 
And she was hunting, let's say, two weekends every year, three days from seven in the morning to five o'clock in the evening for three days, three weekends every year for 10 years before she shot her first moose. No. And when you then finally have this moose showing up, and it's also the right one that you can actually shoot, and it all, you know, you manage to place a good shot and it goes down and everything is fine. Then, of course, I mean, the, the appreciation of the whole happening is mm. just different if you could go out and shoot 10 moves every day. Oh, 100%. Oh, yeah. 100%. 100%. <laughs> I, think, uh, I, I think, you know, I, I always reckon hunting comes down to seconds. And that's mm. what it is, you know, that, that those 10 years of, or what's that? What'd you say? Three weeks, so nine, so nine, nine days. So 90 days comes down to seconds. And I think that's, mm. that's, that's what it's really all about, those seconds. So, um, and I think if it, if it's, if there's, if, if it's always there and you can just kind of jump and you, you know, jump, I mean, I can, I can go, I can go hunting now, literally. I could be up there and waiting for the dawn. We've got a place that's 90 minutes away and I've got access to it whenever I want. And the animals on there aren't controlled by any seasons other than the fact that, you know, they're regarded as a pest animal. So I think that's it. That, that, puts a whole different perspective on it, the fact that there's this there's this in this pressure, I suppose. And I suppose it's good pressure as well to um to have a very short window where success is you can you can be successful. Mm. Okay. Subject. Everyone's gone yeah reflective there for so if we step mm. it out from Sweden tell us about hunting in Europe. Hmm. I mean, I think uh, there's some amazing driven hunts for wild boar in Germany, which mm-hmm. uh, I've done for, I don't know, since I went there for the first time, uh, which is, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 years these ago. Are, these are big animals, right? We're not talking about the Aussie pig. We're talking about a serious size, very small donkey. Uh, well, yeah, sure I mean, like I shot sure one. Like a cow. I, sh- I shot one uh, bear, like here. In Sweden, which was last year, that's coming actually out on the movie we're releasing on Aimpoint's YouTube in two weeks, which is called Driven Hunt Sweden, which is a movie we made ourselves. And there you will see I shoot a wild bull, uh, which was Rylak. It was 155 kilos, so it must have been like alive, just around 200. That's a big wild bull. That's a big big chunk of bacon. Exactly. (laughs) And... um, there's, I mean, there are quite a few of them, of course, that big, but you, you have quite a, a few, which are, let's say, full body size, not quite like 150 kilos. Uh, Germany, same size. You have some in Romania. They, I mean, you can have a big male bull weighing 300 kilos, which mm. is, that's uh. like a massive wild bull, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's the size of a good moose and it's a pig. So uh, Germany has an amazing... Um, some amazing wild boar shoots. They don't have a lot of bird hunting because you aren't allowed to release any birds anymore. Uh, there's a bit in the mm. north where you shoot a bit of waterfowl. But then, uh, of course, unfortunately, we had the last, let's say, six, seven years problems yeah. with the ASP, the African Spine Two, which is still uh, active. And it's just this year it got into Croatia, which is also a big wild boar country. So they are mm. a bit afraid of what's going to happen there. But at the same time, we see... That in countries that say, for example, um, Latvia, they had it. They were one of the first because it came from Belarus. Uh, and they are now, the population is coming back again. So 
there are some populations who are actually regaining uh, quite fast, which is very good news for us hunters because uh, uh, wild boar hunting is just such a big part of what we do. And if that would suddenly be gone forever, that would be very sad. But um, it comes and then it takes some, some time and then the population gets back up. And then, of course, another topic which is very, uh, <clears throat> let's say, intense in Europe is the wolves. Because yeah. there are now so many wolves. And in Sweden, there's like down south from, let's say, everything from Stockholm down to where we are. Uh, not as south, but like one hour again up north from us. They have wolves and they, they just destroy the hunts, you know. Um, because they just go species to species. They first eat the few uh, wild living mouflons in Sweden. They are all gone now. So there were like, I don't know, two or three um groups which have been here since many hundred years and because they're not the cleverest animals they were the first ones to get eaten and then they go to the fellows and the rodeos and then at last they take the wild boars and the moose because the moose are very big and they fight and the pigs they also fight so they uh, they are not as easy to get but the whole uh, wolf topic is a big thing in europe and um people are they, that, game? Say are they are they a huntable species in some European Whoa. countries, they are, but uh, in Germany, where it's a big problem, where they have thousands of them now, they are not huntable, and you go to prison if you shoot a wolf. Whoa. And it's the same in Sweden. In Sweden now, they are, mm. I think they are starting with quotas, and there is also uh, a, a law that if a, if a wolf chases a domestic animal, so let's say a dog, even a hunting dog, and you can prove it, you can shoot a shot at it to get it away. And if it still tries to eat your dog or chase your dog, you can shoot it uh, without being prosecuted. But if you just shoot it, you go to prison. It's, I mean, you will get less of a sentence of shooting a person than shooting a wolf in Germany, in Sweden, and in Poland as well. Uh, so, uh, and I think the hunters, they are just all arguing and saying, okay, does the wolf have to eat a baby before we can start managing them? And I mean, until now, it's um, it's it's not allowed. Um, and there's even speculations that we now also have wolves in tiny Denmark, you know, and they take a lot of, of domestic animals, sheep and cows and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, the wolves, they don't just take one, like a lynx, for example, you know, take one and live out of that for some time. They just go in and they go completely in a blood rush and they kill 50 sheep. And they do it in the really nice way of starting eating them alive from the back. So it's it's really horrible, um, but I think the the green movements they are all about introducing and creating uh, nature as it was two hundred years ago. But I think there's a reason why they uh, were extinct in a lot of areas because as we developed, there was just no space for them, and the people back then they didn't like that they ate all their cattle and their their creatures, so they took them away. And now they're trying to reintroduce them and. There's speculations that they put them in trailers and drive them out and release them in other places to get the population going faster. Um, because in Denmark, there was a whole part of northern Germany where there were no wolves. And suddenly we started seeing wolves in Denmark. We're like, uh, what, did they take a cab from the southern part of Germany up to Denmark? How did they get there? You know? So um, so I think this is also, I think that's uh, going to change a lot in, in terms of, uh, of hunting. Then there's a lot of nice bird hunting down in, in southern Europe. Doesn't Romania have a similar problem with bears at the moment? Because they did they banned yes, bear hunting exactly. in Romania. They banned and bear hunting basically, for five there's, years. there's just horror stories of people getting eaten by grizzly bear, brown bears, as they call them. Yeah, just horror exactly. stories. People you know, mm -hmm. 
getting eaten by brown bears have, all the time. Uh, I have Romanian hunting friends who have uh, been hunting uh, for driven, what used to be driven hunt for, let's say, wild boars and uh, wolves and bears. And now wolves and bears are upliving, so it's only for the wild boars. And then the, the bears, they just come running. Uh, and then if these guys don't act properly, uh, they can shoot them in self-defense. But I have a good friend, he was hunting, and then this one guy, he he thought that it was just going to, off and tried to avoid it but then suddenly the bear came and he tried to shoot it he didn't manage so it just started eating him uh, and the neighbor my friend he heard it so he came running and he then shot the bear while it was on top of his friend starting just eating off his skull uh, so he was I mean terrified. apart he survived but the pictures of him look crazy yeah. um, and they, they you know now they started giving out licenses but it's Let's say it's ridiculous. It's you can shoot one bear out of a thousand kind of thing. And when you see these guys, when they go out with thermal at night just to film, they can easily film 50, 60 bears in a tiny area at night. Mm. So they're everywhere. Yeah. Um, so. I was always really yeah. impressed with the, uh, the, the, the boar hunting in Romania. They, they were, I always thought that's where they get monster size. And exactly. I suppose if you got monster boars, you're going to get monster bears because they'll just, yes. that's what they're, there's their food source. Yeah. That's mm. right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Mm. It's, it's funny how you say about that because, you know, one of the problems that we have is with wild dogs, which are, you know, uh, there's an, there's a whole argument of are they dingoes, are they feral dogs, or are they wild dogs and things like that. But, you know, similar kind of um, situation where the predatory nature of dogs is is not like a, you know, they, they get that where they just packs, just kill livestock. Mm. And, you know, there's many, 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 uh, many a farmer has lost a hell of a lot of sheep to wild dogs and there's a lot of trapping and things like that. But I assume if you crank a, a wild dog up to a wolf, you just, you, you, you're multiplying your problem overnight. Exactly, yeah. Mm, big animals. So, mm. so, and that that's all part of the rewilding idea, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, yeah. And I think also part of uh, some governments being like, uh, we don't like hunting, and these animals are majestic big animals. We they shouldn't be allowed to be shot. And you know, it's you can't just see it like that. You know, because if you don't manage them, they're just gonna uh, eat as they want of what they want. Um, mm. So. They want to, um, yeah. They no. want to reintroduce the wolf to Scotland as well. There's been talk of that. Yeah, for exactly. Years. That's, that's going to be the, the end of red deer up there. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, and I also think you know a lot of Scottish people. They there's a whole argument of the like the shooting business, the hunting industry. Uh, there was uh, I was sitting with our CEO uh, Leonard. We were three weeks ago in in Serbia visiting our distributor down there, hunting quails which was really amazing as well. Also a magnificent hunt when they, when they go on the flight, when they migrate from Europe down to Africa, you have them. And then at night they go down and then early in the morning, you go out with pointing dogs and then dog stops. And then you go and you uh, shoot the quails. They are very small birds, but super mm. delicious. Um, and there he talked about that. There was some uh, German politician who got elected uh, to be like the um, minister of, of, agriculture and nature and so on and he was very green and he was completely against hunting 
and he he had run his whole campaign on that he was going to ban hunting when he if he got elected and then he got elected and he got to look into the economy of the hunting industry and he said okay no chance we're going to cut this off because this is like billions and billions for so many thousand people that we can't do that so he just left it no uh, and I think it's the same discussion having in, in, in Scotland, where they are in England, UK general, where there's a lot of antis and a lot of, let's say, big public names uh, who are against hunting. And, you know, these small minorities, they get such a big voice and they don't really do the math and look at all the thousands of people who are employed by this industry. And then you have the whole government or their forests. They just want to eradicate all the red deer because it's bad for business because they eat their forest but you know uh, do you just want to have uh, scotland being one big sitka plantation i mean how is that for like biodiversity and like uh, uh, nature where, where animals can actually live you know so uh, yeah it's it's all, it's a constant fight between uh, different opinions and what different uh, people want it, it we 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 hear you because we, that this is the conversation we have here all the time it's mm. exactly the same conversation different different location different part but same conversation like for instance recently they brought out this uh statement that you know deer costs australian economy 91 million dollars a year um but in victoria alone it's estimated that deer generate 250 million dollars so and more than from a billion. A financial, from from, 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 from a financial point of view, if the bank rang you up and said, "Look, if you give me ninety-one dollars, I'll give you two hundred and fifty dollars," you know, there'd be a rush on the bank. You know, literally. You know, it, 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 you you just you just wouldn't. You, no, nowhere else would you go. Okay, so what you're saying is, I'm basically a hundred and hundred and fifty. You know, hundred and fifty-nine million dollars up in Victoria alone. Um, you, you'd probably say, "So how can we get more deer in here?" So how can I get the multiply going? And that's just in Victoria alone. And that number yeah. was an Australian number. So it's not the Victorian number. It was Australian number. But we, you know, we, we hear it all the time. Um, in New South Wales, this is pretty much the same. Mm. So so with, I'm going to ask you another about hunting because I'm just looking at the map, to be honest. I'm, 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 I'm planning <laughs> the, the, the Hunter's Campfire European, <laughs> European vacation, to be honest. So when you said you said into southern southern Europe, you were looking at birds, uh, you know, the wing shooting. Where were you, where were you thinking then? Literally... No, for example, as I just said, uh, you have uh, – we were just in Serbia now. Serbia, uh, yep. Boils. And then there is at the Danube River, which is running down between – it's touching uh, Romania, but also Bulgaria. Mm -hmm. That delta down there has some amazing wing shooting. Uh, and then down at that region, you would also have uh, at the right time of year, which is roughly around now, there's a big, big migration of pigeons, which is also, I mean, amazing. You can stand there in the sunflower fields and they will just be flying over them and you can shoot big numbers of, of, uh, of pigeons, which is... Uh, also a kind of, of pest control, but um, a very nice hunt as well. Um, and then, I mean, Hungary and Czech Republic are old renowned countries for making some amazing uh, pheasant shoots. Mm. I think that has uh, maybe changed a bit because now, uh, let's say the art of pheasant shooting is very heavily percepted as a, a, a UK English thing. So there's, uh, 
there's some amazing pheasant shoots there. They are really masters at that. But also, I would say in small Denmark, we are, we've looked over there since many years and also perfected uh, the art of making pheasant shoots. And then in uh, Spain, you have uh, partridges, so red leg partridges, which is also phenomenal. You can hunt them with, uh, with pointers as a walked-up shoot, or you have these uh, driven shoots where they, you stand in these small valleys and they come over the top. Uh, super fast, uh, which is also um, uh, an amazing um, hunt. And if you keep on going, you're back in a turkey and you can chase very big. Yeah, and then you get down again. in Morocco. You, got boar, you, you can got boar also. Yes, exactly. In Tunisia, there's a lot of people who go into Tunisia for boar hunt. There, you, <laughs> as you said, you, uh, you like to shoot them with a shotgun. Down in Tunisia, you can't use rifles. So there, you're hunting them with slugs and shotguns. Uh, the same in Greece. In Greece, you can't use rifles for hunting, only uh, for long-distance boat shooting. So down there, they're also hunting uh, with slugs. Uh, unfortunately, Ooh. for Inpoint, uh, you can't put a sight on your shotgun for hunting in Greece. So we have the S1, which is the sight made for shotgun shooting, which would have been perfect because put it on a shotgun with slugs for driven balls. It's an, it's an amazing tool. But unfortunately, in Greece, no sights on shotguns. Um, so uh, that's, uh, yeah, and then Romania, uh, Bulgaria, you have some super amazing uh, boar hunting as well. Uh, and then, I mean, if you then move further east, you come over to the stands, but then that's uh, all mountain hunting, which is also uh, amazing. Have you, have you hunted there? I've hunted in uh, Kyrgyzstan for mid-Asian Ibex. We nice. also saw quite a lot of Marco Polos. But my mm-hmm. uh, wallet was not made for Marco Polos, so I didn't it's, shoot. That's expensive. That's expensive. No, 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 no. Oh. It's it's very it's very expensive. I mean, I think when I was there, you could shoot a decent sized Marco Polo in Kyrgyzstan for I don't know twenty twenty thousand euros. Mm. And of yeah, course, you have so. to uh, avoid. Ukraine at the moment, so we'd have to we'd have to go. I'm just planning the trip. We'd have to go a long, <laughs> long way, guys. We'd have to go through Turkey and up that through way. Yeah, exactly. You would fly. I mean, people who fly there now, you fly from Europe to Istanbul, and then Istanbul, you fly to uh, Bishkek if you go to uh, Kyrgyzstan, and if you want to go to Kazakhstan, then Almaty, and then from Almaty out there. Uh, there we go. So, uh, yeah, I think amazing. Uh, we might have to get you to help us with the um with the uh. The with nav. the proposal for the trip. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've I've, uh, I've sold uh, hunting trips for eight years, so uh, that was my previous. That's right. Job. We're just getting the proposal up for the for, for the, <laughs> the, the European vacation. <laughs> exactly. So outside of Europe, where where else have you hunted? That's it. Let's let's step it out. Let's keep going. Yeah, yeah let's dip mm. it into the, the the new territory. Your your own point uh, patch. Exactly. So uh, outside, I mean, Iceland is still uh, Iceland. Is still kind of Iceland. I've been hunting for geese. Oh yeah. Uh, Ge- then if we go, hmm. yeah, geese. There's an amazing migration of, of geese uh, September October, uh, which is I mean uh, magnificent. And then you can combine it with salmon fishing. So that combination is really recommendable if you're out there anyway. Mm. Uh, and then, what have I done outside? Then, yeah, I said Kyrgyzstan. And then, of course, 
I, I was so lucky to do a bit of uh, hunting when I was visiting you guys in Australia. And in New Zealand, I've been twice. The last time, actually, when I combined it with a trip uh, in March, where I was also visiting you guys, I didn't do any hunting in New Zealand because it was just their rut and everybody was just so focused and busy with it. And I mean, I was there for work, so um, I didn't get to do. But I was hunting in New Zealand in 2016 when I was there on holiday and I shot a nice tar, which a good friend of mine begged me to get back whole. So I have a whole mounted tar standing. Really? Well, there you go. A lot of space. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, but that's, I think, about it. I haven't uh, yet been in Africa. So that's still, I kind of avoided it when I was working with hunting uh, because I had so many friends that I sent there and also friends who lived there. And they all said, when you first start, you get addicted and then you don't stop coming there. And I was already hunting a lot. Uh, so I was like, okay, if I have to go to Africa several times a year as well, then it's going to be too much. So I still have an Africa trip in front of me, uh, but I'm going to go and visit our distributor in South Africa at some point, not uh, very far away. And then I think it's that's going to be it. I'm going to be hooked. Yeah. Uh, and the rest of the world I, will be neglected from then on. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I went to Argentina as well, actually. Oh, for the dogs. Oh. I've been in Argentina. Uh, where I did a bit of bird shooting Pit. and I also went with the rifle uh, for um, black buck and axis. The red stags? No, I have still have to I still have to go to Patagonia to shoot red stags. I have a very good friend who's invited me over there. They have a an estate where they shoot uh, up in the in the <laughs> Patagonian mountains where they shoot beautiful red stags, uh, which sounds unbelievable. Yeah, uh, but that's also to come. Yeah, I've got a friend who's hunted there. there he's got a number of big red stag trophies. They're huge. You know. Yeah. Terra exactly. del Fuego. Mm. Um, now, we heard that you were, you, were, you were due back over here in, did you say January? I think, yes. I think the plan mm. is that Eric and I, we're going to be there the two midweeks of January. That's what we're trying to plan. Mm, tough time so... of year. Very, very hot. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. That, that... Yeah, exactly. We, we do sometimes hunt through that time of the year, but it's it's usually pretty hard hunting, to be honest. So a pillager yeah. trip. That's yeah. it. Yeah, pillager trip. If you want to experience rough Aussie hunting, Pilliger and some in, in January is about as, as, as rough as million it's wild acres of right. public land. Public, huge chunk of public land full of goats, but it's 35 degrees plus and there's oh, no water in there. Plus. Heat man. <laughs> well, then, then you don't, if you're not a heat man, then you don't want to go. I'm a Viking. <laughs> Everything yeah, well. above 22 degrees, I'm dying. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's not the place. To, that's not the place then to get acclimatized. <laughs> no, that is not the place to get acclimatized. Oh, no, probably got heat stroke there. Well, not we'll got close to heat stroke there a couple of times. It is. It's very hot. It's cooking. Fantastic. Yeah. We, you would. It's an amazing place. Huge, empty 
completely self-sufficient, you know, but hot, <laughs> very, very mm. hot. And if it's the wrong time, and and also, it's, it's strange enough, incredibly violent storms come through there too. Yeah. Summer storms come through there as well. So, yeah. okay. big place. Yeah, that's good. Mm. We're Fish selling it to them. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, look, you've been well, I have never seen snake filling. They're all too. They're just too tired. The cat is too 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 hot. too hot to go out. Yeah. Oh well. Well, um, we'll plan a pilgrim trip for you. I think so. You're up that it. sounds amazing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, heat snakes and heat. So it's just my thing. <laughs> Let's do it. It's like fun. We'll see if we can break Carl. <laughs> For sure. Send All you right. back. Yeah. Anything else, Mark? No, I'm. I'm about. I, I've look. I, I've. I've. I've planned our trip. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> I've got a, I've got a, you know the uh, Euro European vacation already in my mind. We're just going to find a, a, the appropriate backers, but I'm, you know, we're going to have some fun. So right. that's about I, it for I, me. I thought we were organising a tag along with Carl for a year tour. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> the chaos. I'm thinking more like the Conti, you know, the, the Contiki, like 30 different huntings in 22 days across 45 nations or something like that. Yeah. That's, Today, that's talk, nice. talk about the slam. Like, um, that's it. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> level. yeah, for sure. All right. Well, we'll, we'll keep planning that, Mark. We'll see how we go. Oh, yeah, sounds like a good idea to me. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm about. I've, I think I've uh, exhausted Carl. Anything from your good self, Carl? You want to add to the conversation, or have we exhausted you? No, 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 no. It's perfect. I mean, I live uh, uh, off speaking, so uh, for me, it's perfectly fine. Um, been really good. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, Mark, we've yeah. really appreciated your time. I know it's uh, midday where you are, and you're, you, you know, you, you, I suppose, ex supposedly at work. Exactly. Yeah, we have a lot going on, so we have two actually two events simultaneously. So we have something we call Education Days, which is like uh, we invite all our distributors, and they come one or two from each country, and they are now here this week doing training. So we train them in all our products. Uh, they came. E Monday and they're leaving Thursday. And at the same time, our fire control system, the big uh, military equipment we make, they're also having some showcase days right these days. And then on Monday, we have something we call Aimpoint Shooting Academy. So basically, it's uh, we did it six years ago. Back then, it was called Wild Ball Fever Academy together with a, a Wild Ball Fever movies. But now we call it Aimpoint Shooting Academy. So we there was a period of, I don't think, two months people could sign up. Um, and there were like six, 7,000 people who signed up and we've chosen the 20 best. They all arriving wow. on Monday. Wow. And then we have from Monday to Friday where we train them and assess them. And then out of those 20 winners, we're going to pick two winners and they're going to win um, being in one of our next hunting movies. They're going to win a sacco rifle, uh, ammunition, Hercula clothing, pelter, ear protection, of course, name point. Um, so that's happening the whole next week. We have 20 people from all around the world that are going to come and uh, be trained and assessed. And then we pick the, the two best next Thursday and they are then going to win a spot on one of our hunts in October. So there's a lot yeah. of planning for that as well. I was going to oh, ask you about that. So... You, can, you can win a spot on one of their hunts. Mm, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and do, that's what they're do, competing for. 
How do we answer mm. that? I, I saw it on social media and I was going to ask you about it. Yeah. Uh, so basically, it was just um, on all our social media, there was a lot of information about that you follow the link, you came into our webpage, and then you signed up by just giving your name. And then uh, there was a bit, there was a, you had to do a written um, part where you had to tell us why you were the ones to be chosen. And out of those 7,000, we then chose the the ones we thought were the 20 best um, and they are then going to come. So, um, but there's a lot of people who said, why didn't I get chosen? <laughs> I was like, we only were able to choose 20. That's right. So look out no, for that I next saw year. It, as I said, I saw it had been, it, it you know, it had been closed and the, the people have been picked. So yeah, it was. Yeah. Love it. All right. We'll call it a wrap. Thanks, Carl. Thank been you very much. An awesome, an awesome couple of hours. Like really, mm. really interesting stuff. So, uh, looking forward to seeing you back over here for sure. Hopefully, we can catch yeah. up on your next tour. Um, yes, yes, uh, yes. We, we will, we will try and get you the Pilliga. I'm not sure if we'll make it happen. Tony, where are you <laughs> traveling to? Melbourne or Sydney? Uh, that's all very uh, early stages. So I think we're going to travel to, uh, of course, Melbourne first, and then hopefully we will plan a tour with Beretta to cover as much as uh, the small, beautiful country of Australia as we can, but only I having two weeks. Uh, exactly, like last time. So trying to pack in as many different locations in those two weeks as possible. Got we don't need to uh, sleep a lot, it. but uh, we just want to educate as many as possible. And when we, did, right. when we do the whole trip over there, we want it to be as uh, effective as possible. So that's the plan. Awesome. All right. Matt? No, that's it. I was going to say, uh, I, 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 not to cast any aspersions, but I, I like it how the first time you visit Australia, the first place you went to was Hillcrest. I thought it was pretty good. Welcome <laughs> <laughs> to town. <laughs> Where are we exactly? But I went to, uh, I was also in a town called Tamworth. Tamworth, yeah. Tamworth. Tamworth, yeah. yes, 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 yes. I went to a lot of, of very far away places from anything else. At least the people who were there said, this is not a, a, a place normal people would go to if they don't live here. <laughs> so, but I was like, oh, it's nice to be here. I get to That's see it. a bit of everything. So Very close to one of our favorite hunting spots, mate. Mm, that is. It's very close. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So. Okay, well, thanks very much, mate. I really appreciate your time, as we said, and it's been great to help plan our trip coming our European vacation. So we've <laughs> yeah. enjoyed that information a lot. And as I said, I've been following the map, and it was great to talk to you again. And I really hope to catch up with you in January, and I reckon we'll try and I'll, I'll see if we can get Scott to give you a day off or something like that, and we'll try and figure out something. Yeah, for sure. Sounds amazing. Awesome. Thanks, Carl. Right, mate. Really appreciate Catch it. You later. See you, mate. Okay. Perfect. See you later. See you.